In this episode of Undictated, we have a look at South Africa's power situation and how we can get past, what's it now, level six, level seven coming, level eight, who knows. Dr. Kelvin Kim is the chairman of Stratech Global. It's his business, his own business, uh, based in Pretoria, which um, focuses on business strategy. And he has degrees in mathematics and nuclear physics, completed his PhD at the age of 26. And Kelvin, I'm not sure if you're aware, but you and R.W. Johnson attended the same high school. Um, I have a vague recollection now that you mention it that I heard that, but I, I wouldn't have brought it to mind immediately. So thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Northwood High. It wasn't really uh, one of the most prestigious of schools, but it's produced the two of you and uh, no doubt others as well who've risen to the top in their area. You focused pretty much on nuclear and uh, trying to explain to people like me who all we can remember was Jacob Zuma wanted to bankrupt the country by talking to Rosatom and getting the Russians involved here. And I suppose as a result of that, there's a very negative connotation uh, in people's minds on nuclear energy. So it's been quite a tough path to follow. Very. It's been a very tough path to follow. And in fact, if anything, the one thing that Azuma did correctly was to push for nuclear energy. Uh, possibly one reason was that I became an advisor of his early on. He asked me what I thought after he'd started this thing going. And then there was a massive misinterpretation on the part of the public because there was a worldwide anti-nuclear sentiment that was very much stoked by Greenpeace and all those. And the, the local Greenpeace fell in with the international mood. And what they don't want is they don't want centralized power because that gives power to people that control it. There's a very much a socialist communist move on the part of people like Greenpeace and so on to sort of have power in the hands of the people, so to speak. So they glorify your solar panel on your roof. But that's not a way to drive a train across the Karoo. The reality is you need concentrated power like coal or nuclear and wind and solar has its place, but not as a mainstream of the country. And that's been shown all over the world. But thankfully, over about the last uh, year and a half, say, there's been a pro-nuclear swing of some magnitude taking place. Uh, the Ukrainian affair uh, made Europe realize to what degree they were not um, independent and in their energy and didn't control their energy. South Africa has always had a rule that we can't import more than 15% of the energy. At uh, the moment, when we haven't got enough for ourselves, but it was that we were very aware of how critically important it is to be in control of your own energies, like controlling your own blood flow, so to speak. And so now there's a substantial move. A lot of the world leaders, particularly the Western world leaders, were just dead scared of public opinion, of course. And when they saw public opinion favoring climate change and therefore wind and solar had to be forced politically into the population force, they were going with the flow. Um, I spoke to certain high-level people, one of whom I'll even tell you now is Emmanuel Macron, and I said to him, golly, I'm promoting French nuclear more than you are. And he said to me, yes, but I've got these crazy greens out in the street, and if I make one wrong move, they throw bricks through car windows. That was a couple of years ago. Now he's announced a small modular program for France, and a number of world leaders are going in favor of that, because I think they've got the courage to, um, to do it, having seen there being a general movement swinging towards nuclear. 
So um, now we see newspaper articles coming out that you would never have seen 18 months ago, even a year ago. So I think there's going to be a rapid pro-nuclear move. I, I think there's going to be quite a drama at COP28, and I think nuclear will come out quite strongly out of COP28. So the mood is changing, but South Africa should have gone the nuclear route. There was um, a lot of anti-nuclear sentiment by the Greens and the media and nothing from the engineers. I went to a few of the organizations, the pro-engineering organizations, said, what do you think? They said, no, we're right behind nuclear. I said, will you support it? They said, no, we dare not. So that's what happened. And the, the big companies that should have been putting their brains in gear and doing something about it just didn't. And uh, so now you're having to patch up. South Africa has, a, has an interesting history in nuclear. We had the Pebble Bed Modular Reactor, uh, which is also something that bears a little more contextualization. What happened there? Well, that became the world's biggest nuclear project. Uh, we were the first in the world to start a commercial small modular reactor design. We got to the point where we actually started building it. The pressure vessel was built. It was brought to South Africa. Sub-assemblies were made. And at the time, I kept saying to the engineering people, I said, go out and tell the public what you're doing. They said, no, no, I'd rather just keep our heads down. The minister at the time was on their side, and he was reporting to Tolbo and Becker, who was on their side. And they said, no, we just let sleeping dogs lie, which was a big mistake. Uh, then Zuma got pushed out. Sorry, um... And Becky got pushed out, Zuma came in and immediately started putting him on hold or cancellation a lot of the major projects under his predecessor. Uh, Pebble Bed was one of them. At the time, believe it or not, the total number of people who got out of bed every morning to work on the Pebble Bed was 2,000. It was unbelievable. And it was hugely advanced, and we were ready to go ahead. But by 2010, the whole thing was effectively cancelled. In fact, it was never cancelled. It was put on to hold for a while, and we thought the while would be a couple of months, and it has never been unleased. So uh, it went on to ice block, so to speak, and it was great pity, because now all sorts of people around the world are climbing in with SMR designs and um, marketing themselves as if they are really up there by the front, and we're way ahead of essentially everybody. Pebble bed modular reactors gone ahead in South Africa, because you're now going back... Mm, well, 13 years, would that have, by this stage, uh, been playing a part in offsetting the load shedding? Absolutely. In fact, back then, we should have built the, the first big nuclear reactor. In fact, two would have been built by now if we'd not stopped that program. We got to the point where there was an assessment done of the tenders on about a Thursday of the week. They were expecting the result to be announced by the next Monday, Tuesday or something on the following week, the project. That project was then cancelled. That was the big reactors. So we were within hours of announcing the go-ahead of that project when it was stopped. In fact, there again, it was sort of stalled, and the stalled was never unstalled. But otherwise, we would have at least one, if not two, uh, uh, react uh, nuclear power stations bigger than Kuburg running now. And I don't think we ever would have had any load shedding, and it would have been the right decision. So even now, we need to go ahead with the big, big reactors. But the big reactors need to be on the coast. There's five sites, new sites being identified. The two prime ones are one uh, down by Jeffreys Bay called Tastepint. It's, it's essentially ready to go. Millions has been spent on assessing the site and doing the EIA. The other one is Dana Fontaine, which is next door to Kuburg. 
that's been approved to go ahead. That was the number two site. And then there's three others, another one in the Western Cape down by near Cape Ogullis, and then two up on the, the Northern Cape coast. And they've all purchased years ago and, and work was started on all of them. So we got to that point. Now, meantime, we've spent as much money on wind and solar as we would have spent on the first nuclear, react, nuclear complex. And the wind and solar is giving us nothing in comparison to the 3,500 megawatts we would have got from one nuclear power station. So that was a, a mistake. Zuma saw the light afterwards and came out. He never signed any deal with the Russians that, that I can find out about. I spoke to him. I spoke to people in Moscow. I spoke to most senior government people. Nobody knows anything about it. What in fact happened is the minister at the time signed five technology cooperation agreements with five countries, the, the USA, Korea, China, uh, Russia, and which one was France. And those were to make sure that if we did nuclear within the foundations who understood that we worked in metric measure and we did this or we did that, it was an early handshake. The Russians signed that in Russia. And within a couple of hours, a private message came to me, look, this has just come out. Some Russian translator, a young lady whom I actually got to meet later, she translated into English and didn't do that good a job. And she also, with her Russian mentality at the time, when they said something like, this could lead to further developments in South Africa and Russia, and she said, this will lead to building reactors. So um, it came out like that, and uh, the Extreme Green Lobby then decided to interpret that as a contract had been signed clandestinely, and it wasn't. In fact, that wouldn't happen either. There's no way a president can sign a nuclear contract. Like in South Africa, you've got levels the engineers must approve, the fuel systems must be approved, the uh, nuclear regulatory authorities must approve, there must be site approved. There's a whole lot of approvals that spiral around one another to come to a conclusion that's acceptable to the nuclear fraternity of the country. You can't just be told that technology will be accepted. And so it was never viable, uh, but nobody was fighting back either other than at a political level. They didn't involve the scientists and engineers. So it's been a pity. There was quite a mess. Uh, there was never a court decision stopping nuclear. There was a court decision saying that the public participation process had been inadequately carried out. That's what the court said. The Greens had announced to the press the court has stopped the nuclear program. It hadn't. And uh, so now we're in a position where Minister Gwedi Mantashi has now announced 2,500 megawatts of nuclear, and he said the RFP should be coming out January, February next year. And of that 2,500, 2,400 is for the big reactor that will quite likely go near Jeffreys Bay or possibly Cape Town, and then there's 100 megawatts allocated for small modular reactor development. He has to put development there and not purchase because there isn't one running at the moment, so you can't look and buy that one or that one like and buy a car. And uh, so that's what the 2,500 represents. Sure. It's, a, it's quite a complicated story. But I guess you, you can't blame the public for saying that the whole nuclear program of Zoomers was a way to plunder, plunder the state. We've seen what state capture has done. We see what happened at Madupi and uh, Kusile, where uh, there was a lot of money that was stolen from taxpayers. And so I guess, given that, and the Russian involvement as well with Rosatom, 
there were a lot of lot of warning flags. What what's different today? Why should we now be listening to what you say and saying, "Come on, nuclear has must have a a, a part in South Africa's energy future." Well, if you look at Madupi and Kusili, the principle and and everything was was dead accurate. In fact, we should probably be building another big coal station like that. However, what went wrong there is all sorts of uh, plundering, as you say, and that projects for the, and contracts were wangled into various people's hands, not because they were considered technologically the best people, but they were the people that were greasing palms and so on and so forth. And that's not the way you build a, a complex thing. Also, they did not trust South African engineers. There were all sorts of foreign engineers that came in with specifications from other countries our people had found out that certain pipe work and that in South Africa had to be done this way because it worked with our type of coal and our type of uh, temperatures and so on, but they didn't. They brought in the foreign type pipe work and put that in, only to find that it failed quite soon afterwards. And South African engineers were saying, but we knew that 20 years ago, but you wouldn't come and ask us. So there should have been, like a military system, there should have been one single project manager like the overall general in command, and they say, you build this thing. And everybody else out of the way. And he must then ensure that all the, the hundreds and hundreds of private enterprise companies that all together come to, to build this thing, just like a huge uh, military machine going into battle, the artillery and the parachutes and the infantry and, the, and all that, all are coordinated through a line of command. And there wasn't. I've heard numbers of stories of this happening and that happening, and nobody knows who's doing what and where and crossing each other's paths. That's where all the money went down the drain. It was the bad project manager. It wasn't that, um, that the principle of building a big station like it was wrong. We'd done it before. South Africa built the, the largest dry-cooled, air-cooled uh, coal fire power stations in the world. That was when the Eskom guys, Eskom engineers, were dealing with engineers in the private world. Uh, because, of course, there's always private enterprise that effectively has run ESCAP and run the coal stations. People sort of talk now about the privatization of ESCAP. That's very false because ESCAP never went out and poured concrete. They contracted people to pour concrete. The ESCAP engineers always were the project overseers at the top, but they had the engineers doing it. They didn't give it to all sorts of, of cadre deployment buddies. And uh, so that's what happened. So there were very fine engineers in Eskom always that were doing a good engineering job and making sure that a whole lot of private companies collectively built the power stations. And that didn't happen for Cassidy and Madupi, and you see what the result was. So for new nuclear, was make sure we handle it in the correct project management way and not find that everybody's got a finger on the pie somewhere because that's when you'll get a mess. But if they leave it to South Africa, we, we world leaders in nuclear in many respects. And we know what we're doing. South Africa is the third oldest nuclear country in the world, believe it or not. We predate uh, France, Japan, uh, and so on. And so we've been in the game a very long time. And so we know what we're doing as long as they give us the go-ahead and step out of the way. So don't, don't do another firing Alstom and bringing in Hitachi because it gives the ANC 25% of the project kind of thing when we go forward on, on nuclear. Yeah. How good are we then if we've been, that's a that's an interesting um, fact that you've given us that South Africa is the third oldest nuclear country in the world. How good are we at this? And particularly what's been going on at Kuburg, because we have, again, there's, there's mixed messages coming through on the upgrading of uh, our nuclear plant there. 
Well, uh, the American Atomic Energy Commission uh, was formed in 1946. NEXA, South Africa's Nuclear Authority, was formed in 1948. The British were in between, so that's when we started. Way back, Jan Smuts realized that nuclear was going to be a future. And believe it or not, if you look in about 1950 in the legislation, South Africa had decided to go ahead with nuclear development and design nuclear reactors. It even got it in the government intention in the 50s. And uh, so we've been there a long time. Kuburg is the most southerly nuclear power station in the world, currently the only operating one in Africa, although uh, Egypt is currently building one, so Egypt will be the next. Uh, Kuburg is the only nuclear power station in the world completely certified under both American legislation and European legislation. Previous um, Kuburg managers made sure that that was done. So we respect it all over the world for the nature of the operation. They're right now going through a, a midterm upgrade. And what has just happened now with Unit 1 is that three steam generators have been replaced. And that's a fantastic job. Each of these steam generators is the size of two municipal buses standing end on end, and each one weighs more than a Boeing 747. And these three had to be brought into the country, moved from Cape Town Harbor, taken through a, a thing that plays hole in the wall, so to speak, horizontally, brought vertical, lined up, and all the wells and connections, of which there are many, had to be done utterly perfectly. Everything checked and then ticked off against the National Nuclear Regulator over and over and over again. And th there was huge complexity, both technical and legal complexity for all the compliance. And I think they've done a wonderful job. Now, they're about to switch off unit number two, which the, the power station manager will do when he sees fit, possibly in the next couple of weeks. And then it will go through the same exercise, but it should be much faster now because they did the first one and they know they've got all the experience to do it. It's only a couple of times in the world that this has ever been done. So this is a major achievement. And as soon as the new generators are in, uh, Kuburg will be able to produce up to 10% more power than now. The new steam generators will enable you to extract more energy out of the nuclear reactor. So we could get as much as 200 megawatts extra out of Kuburg. And it's good to run for another 40 years. So it's in good shape. And, of course, I must add that Kuburg is currently South Africa's cheapest electricity by far at about 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Thank you for that context. From your perspective, uh, you are also doing something very interesting uh, within your company, uh, which is privately owned. Just explain that to us and, the, and, again, how that could benefit this country and maybe elsewhere. Well, what happened is after the, the pebble bed uh, reactor was essentially closed down. It's been sitting there with a small core of people that were sitting in Eskom just for legal reasons that recently were moved over to Nexa. And, and so it was never actually stopped. As I said, they had this little thing, little group that kept sitting there. And so it's always been there. However, the, of course, the engineers and that started to dissipate and go into other jobs. But a group of them were really committed. And they got together, formed a private grouping initially with 48 people putting in private contributions, and they started designing a variant of the pebble bed uh, reactor, one that could be built cheaper and faster. There were two major differences. One, they reduced the outlet temperature from 940 to 750, which is still massive, bearing in mind that Kuburg is 250 to 300. And uh, they also then 
took helium cooling through the core and through a heat exchanger. And the heat exchangers, like the ones they've just replaced at Kuburg, you buy them off the shelf. So what it meant was you only have to design the actual reactor. All the other stuff in the power station is off-the-shelf purchase. So we know the price at any moment, and it can just be done by ordering one of the international companies to build the turbines, this, this, and this. So we went and they did that, and they went ahead and over 10 years now have been working on it and have designed a reactor called the HTMR, High Temperature Modular Reactor 100. It produces 100 megawatts of thermal energy, which gives you 35 megawatts of electricity. It's about 5 or 10% the size of a big nuclear power station, but typically you'd put two reactors or four reactors on the site. So you typically have, say, 70 megawatts or something if you have a pair. Now, the great advantage of the HTML 100, that's what we are promoting at the moment, what we want to build in Pretoria, and we're looking for international funding and looking for local support. We're getting significant interest from around the world. I'm getting a phone call or some communication every two weeks for the last 18 months. Uh, just a fortnight ago, uh, a big deal funder from Europe arrived here in Sampton to come and see us. Um, this is the third foreign visit we've had where people have physically come to sit with us to say, you guys look as if you really know what you're doing. That is developing rep very rapidly now. Interestingly, the fellow had never been to Africa. He arrives here and we have a meeting in Santon and he says, wow, your roads work. You've got a fantastic airfield. Man, that's, the street lights work. The traffic flows beautifully. The hotel's wonderful. The water, you know, the area, you know, not just him. I'll be found numbers of these European people phone up and they think we've got a dirt airstrip with a Piper Cub landing. They don't know we've got first world sophistication. So then you tell them we want to build a nuclear reactor. And they imagine you living in your mud hut trying to convince them that you can build a nuclear reactor. The moment they come here and have a look, so they say, good grief, these guys are in a different ballgame. And South Africa, like the Department of Tourism, that is not promoting to the world the sophistication of the country. We see little vehicles riding around at the Kruger Park looking at the lions and so on, but you don't see the airport and the freeways and this type of thing. It's, it's a major problem. So anyway, um, that's all going well. In the meantime, the, the 48 that put money in, because there was this anti-nuclear sentiment, they one by one fell out. And now we've consolidated it, and it's now what's within my company together with some other players. And we've now got the, the nucleus of some 100-plus people, um, and we want to build this. And we, it's built, it's designed, sorry, it's not built, it's designed, and that we're ready to start. If somebody gives us money tomorrow, we can go. We also find the international funders are calling. We're looking for about $500 million to build a, a reactor, which a plant that, that produces electricity. We find they phone up and they talk to me. They say, how much money do you want? And I said, we've got a very accurate figure that I give them, but for you, it's just $500 million approximately. Then they gasp on the other side and they say, is that all? I was expecting five times more because the other countries are quoting five times more than us. But I went to look up, you know, this Big Mac index of what a Big Mac burger costs in various countries. I looked it up a few days ago when I got an inquiry. In the United States, it's about $5.50. In Switzerland, $7.20. Around much of Europe, $6 something. In South Africa, $1.65. That's what the Big Mac index is. So it shows you why they come up with figures like five. So they can't believe 
that we can achieve what we say we can achieve at what appears to them to be very small money. Uh, interestingly, the one fellow recently said to me, your country is considered very stable, believe it or not, in that we trust the private enterprise there to do what they say. Um, one of my colleagues in my group here went to the Middle East a couple of weeks ago and had a, a dinner with the crown prince of one of those countries there. And during the dinner, the crown prince said to him, I find South Africans to be some of the finest people in the world. He said, your engineers always do what they say and they finish the job and they do a good job. So he said, well, thank you very much. We think that too, but it's nice to hear it from you. And it's interesting to see the opinions that they are there, that they are interested in dealing with us. And we're dealing with uh, two royal families at the moment. Um, and um, we have to just pull certain politics together, that will, much of which is not under our control, you know. But overall, we're in a position to build uh, the reactor, say, in Pretoria, because this is where we are, and there's a nuclear-certified site, and all the, the experts are here. Then the export potential for Africa and elsewhere is phenomenal. I emphasize the reactor does not need water. It's gas-cooled, so you can put a cross on a map and just put it there. You don't have to go where the water is. And um, so we've had inquiries from numbers of African countries. There's... Uh, 10 or 12 African countries so far that have announced to the International Atomic Energy Agency that they want to follow a nuclear future. You'll find it in the media. It's easy to look it up. And they're realizing that they can't build coal, they can't do gas, they can't because of the size of the country as well. They can't just do something here and then put power lines because for them, power lines are 500 kilometers long, not like in Germany where they're five kilometers long. And so the practicalities, I've sat with some of these leaders of other African countries, and they just say so when they look at it, there's no answer other than something like nuclear power that doesn't need water and is small enough to handle economically they can afford it and uh, from a point of view of the, the date of our operations. So that's going to be the answer. So the export potential for us is phenomenal. And then you go to South African businessmen and you get sort of blank stares, or what you get is we absolutely support you. We're right behind you, but we don't tell anybody outside. We're not going to be seen to be supportive. And that's shocking. Dr. Kelvin Kemp, fascinating insights on a potential future for South Africa. And I'm Alec Hogg from biznews.com. 